Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but struggling to find diverse and talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Good Juju Studios is looking for an art director. This is a remote position. Bandcamp is looking for a user experience designer. This is a remote position. Hart is looking for a designer in either Columbus, Ohio or Toledo, Ohio. And Flyleaf Creative is looking for a mid-level graphic slash visual designer in New York City. For just $99, you can post your job listing with us and it'll be on our job board for 30 days and we'll help spread the word about your job to our diverse audience of listeners. We also offer an annual job board subscription. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more info on these listings. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, I want to take some time out and thank our accessibility sponsor for this episode, Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, Check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. Also, we received a new review on Apple Podcasts, which we haven't had. We haven't had a new review in months. My goodness. But this review comes from Santa Eric, and it's titled, Consistently Excellent, Always Surprising. This pod makes us all better. Here's the review. When I first found Revision Path in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder in my neighborhood, I went back to hear how Maurice treated his interviews with women. I didn't want to listen to anyone treating women as lesser designers. He is open, encouraging, curious, and well-researched in all his interviews. I've been keeping up and catching up with his stories ever since. An evergreen podcast with a stellar history. Please download and subscribe. Wow, thank you, Santa Eric, so much for that amazing, wonderful, glowing review. I try to get the the gender parity on the show, I want to say as close to 50-50 as possible. Like, I haven't counted in I don't know how long, which is probably a project I need to do pretty soon. Um, but I, I, I am always kind of keeping track of like, okay, if I see I'm interviewing too many men, let's try to have more women on the show. I always try to balance it out. Of course, I always welcome trans folks to come on the show if you're gender non-binary gender non-conforming etc and you're a black designer and you've got a story to tell like hit me up let me know i would love to have you on the show but again santa eric thank you so so much for that great wonderful review glad to hear that the podcast is still reaching people 
eight years later. You know, I've said before on the show that, you know, podcasting sometimes can be a pretty solitary type of venture. Um, and I would say particularly over the past year with the pandemic and not really being able to go out and, you know, meet you all and do live shows like we wanted to do in 2020. You know, it was kind of a, a bit of a bummer, but it's so glad. I'm so glad when I get reviews like this because it lets me know that people are listening, that the interviews are making an impact. So thank you so much. If you're listening and you want to leave a, a five-star review, I would love that. <laughs> Go to Apple Podcasts and do that right now. All right. So now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Cherry Ann Davis, a self-proclaimed creator of visuals and words and a design student from Trinidad and Tobago who is currently studying design in Zurich, Switzerland. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. I am Cherry Ann Davis, and I am currently a master's student at Zurich University of the Arts studying visual communication design. And Zurich, that's Zurich as in Switzerland, correct? Yes, Zurich as in Switzerland. I left my good hot island in the Caribbean <laughs> to go to Zurich, another part of the world that I've not been before. Well, first of all, I never left my country for longer than a week before moving to Switzerland. Wow. Yes. And you've been there, um, I think you told me earlier, you've been there since February of last year. Yes, February 1st, 2020, I moved. I packed my four suitcases with everything that I own and I hold there in my life. And I brought with me so many books. <laughs> and I came by myself into a new world. How's it been adjusting to everything? Well, one month after arriving, there was a global lockdown. So that adjustment period was quite hard because I didn't know anybody. The one person that I knew, he kind of like dropped me as soon as I got to Switzerland. So oh, no. I was in a pandemic by myself, not knowing anyone in a flat with two other people upstairs and the people who were on my floor left. They went back to their countries to spend quarantine with their families to spend that time. And I was just there by myself. Wow. And yeah, being new to school, not even having time to meet my classmates and get to know them. It was rough. It was real hard. My goodness, I can only imagine. How did you yeah. get through that? Well, I mean, I guess you're kind of still getting through it, right? I am still getting through it. Enough prayers. Like I prayed a lot and I spoke to my therapist a lot because as much as you think that as much as I was prepared mentally to move to another country, I was not prepared mentally to move to another country and be in so much isolation. Although I lived on my own when I was back in Trinidad, I, it was something that I could not comprehend. Mm. As we're recording this, so for people that know, we're recording this right before Memorial Day, so right near the end of May. What's the, the situation like in Zurich or in Switzerland, I guess, as it relates to like reopening or anything? Right now, next Monday, all of the restaurants will be reopening to have both inside and outside guests. So for the last two weeks, they were just having people, they could dine on the patios or outside of the restaurants. But from this Monday, all restaurants will be opened for both seating inside and outside. That is mainly because there's like a big drive to get people vaccinated. I had my last shot yesterday, and I'm scared as fuck. 
<laughs> because um, I'm thinking about all of the the history with vaccination and being black, and mm-hmm. I'm in a predominantly white country, so my paranoid and my my fear is just going off the radar right now. But Zurich is one of the cities that has opened up vaccination for all persons, no matter your age group or your risk right now. So with that, they are trying to open more and more, relax the measures more and more. Sorry. Which uh, vaccine did you get? I am not sure. I think it's Moderna, but it might be AstraZeneca. I can't remember. I was so nervous when they were telling me. I kind of blanked out. (laughs) Okay. I mean, but it was one you had to get two shots for? Yes, yes. Okay. So it was probably Moderna or I think it's, I think actually those might be the only two two shots that are available globally. I don't know if Pfizer is or not. I'm not sure. And talking to some of my friends yesterday, Pfizer was available in, in a different part of Switzerland. So Switzerland is actually, well, Zurich is actually larger than my country. <laughs> uh-huh. So like at different parts of Zurich, you could get a different vaccine. So I'm just like, whoa, that's weird. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. I mean, all this news, and I've I've mentioned this on the show before, so yeah. for folks listening, I'm not trying to, to belabor the point, but I mean, all of the news around this has just been changing week mm-hmm. after week, whether it's availability or yeah. restrictions and things opening up. There's been such a rush back here in the, in America, for, uh, in the U.S., for things to reopen that it's it's kind of staggering. I mean, it was so interesting because I remember this time last year, there was so much about making sure people wash their hands for 20 mi- for 20 seconds and yeah. wore a mask and now that it's like masks off i mean everywhere people are just like it's going to be a wild summer in the united I states get, because people are ready to get out i right now i get scared when i'm on the tram and i see someone not wearing a mask i'm like yo so what are you doing this is Corona. And for me, it's it's kind of baffling because back home in Trinidad, right now, there's a state of emergency. You can't go anywhere between nine and six. And if you are going anywhere outside of those hours, you have to have like a good reason as well to be outdoors. You can't exercise outdoors. I feel it for like the people back home. And here I am having the opportunity to take a vaccine, to get a vaccine even, because mm-hmm. back home they ran out of vaccines. And I am here with so much privilege. And this man not wearing his mask, like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. I know some Europeans that came, they, they flew over here last mm. month to get the vaccine because the country that they were in, yeah. it didn't seem like that it was going to be available or they didn't really have a, a sense of, when vaccines would be available. So they just flew over here, got it, and that was it. (laughs) Well, that's an ability that very few have, like that access to even leave your own country to get a vaccine. Like people don't realize that privilege. I have friends in Berlin and they can't even get a vaccine. I think now it it appears that Vaccines are starting to get out to more countries from mm-hmm. from the U.S. because right now we're at this point where supply is greatly outpacing demand. Yeah, um, be- and and partly that's because prior to I want to say maybe a couple of weeks ago, you really had to go to like mass vaccination sites or mm-hmm. or maybe get them through your doctor or something. But now you can get them at pretty much any pharmacy 
you can get really? it at. So like the availability, yeah, the availability has increased a lot. But even with that, some people, because it's a, you know, if they do a two shot like Pfizer or Moderna, they're only getting the first shot and not the second yeah. one because that people was- are talking about side effects and everything. Mm-hmm. That was one of the things that was happening in Trinidad. So before I think they ran out of the vaccines, everyone, like a few people who are in the high risk area, they were able to get like the first shot. So, and then they ran out of vaccines. So it's like, what's going to happen now that they need to get a second shot? Do they now have to wait to get the same brand of shots or would they get a second shot from another brand of um, medication? So it's like, questions just big question marks yeah in trinidad yeah well let's shift the conversation away from vaccines and all that sort of stuff talk to me about what you're studying you say at the zurich institute for the arts is that what it was zurich university of the arts zurich university of the arts thank you yes i am doing visual communication design I came with the intention of doing a project around pattern design and Trinidad and Tobago because I had so much time during Corona and I have to have a thesis to go along with my artifact. I was able to think a little bit deeper into what I want my project to be because I initially was just thinking about the diversity and the culture of Trinidad and Tobago being represented in some type of pattern design for fabric or wallpaper. I told my interviewers when I was applying for the school that I would love to see an, a line of IKEA wallpapers that just shows the brilliance and vibrance of Trinidad and Tobago through pattern design. And they said, yes, we have partners in IKEA. I said, yes, that's what I want my project to be. Nice. And during lockdown, I had way too much time on my hands. <laughs> and I I got to thinking, what does a pattern design actually say? And how does it benefit the design industry? And what would my thesis say? And what am I adding to the conversation? So it changed. It pivoted from being pattern design of Trinidad and Tobago as a thesis and an artifact to a thesis now looking at how can designers who are not part of the Western world utilize their own culture to create inspiration for designs. Mm. That's a really rich subject to, to go into. Yeah. For me, it's something that... I wanted when I was doing corporate design because I worked at a bank that was throughout the Caribbean. So we were operating in 17 islands at the time and I was responsible for all of the visuals. So all of the marketing campaigns, I was responsible for creating the ads. So whether it was digital or print or even TV ads, I would be the person who would give approval along with um, my colleagues in Canada. And a lot of times, my colleagues in Canada, (laughs) I remember this one meeting, it was for a Christmas campaign, and they proposed an idea, and I was the one reviewing it and providing the Caribbean context. And they were like, well, we're not sure if you all have hardwood floors and you all use Christmas trees. And I'm like, what do you mean if we have hardwood floors? Like, (laughs) where do you think we live? On the beach? In a swinging from tree to tree we have hardwood floors we have tiled floors we have it works just like everybody else and i basically had to let them know 
hey, as much as you think that your view of things are better and your ideas are wrong, design or even life may be more rich because of your position in Western world, we still have access to all of these things too. Like just do a simple Google search and you see how rich our countries are. Like, And from that is where a seed was planted because so many times us as designers who don't belong to the Western world, we still have to conform to a lot of the Western canon and how to design and how we should market our products to people. And we, most of the times, don't consider our audience, which is the people that we're advertising to. They are also rich with diversity that we should reflect in our ads as well. So, yeah. That was where the idea was based. I think that's a, a marvelous idea. And it's something that, you know, at least I know here in the States, there's been a lot of talk around decolonizing design, which is mm-hmm. sort of trying to free people's mindsets away from, honestly, from a Eurocentric vision of design, like Swiss design or German yes. design or French design or whatever, but trying yeah. to like free, free yourself from that and learn about designers from other cultures or even designers from different races so you can sort of add to your own design knowledge and research and and inspiration to create like bigger and better things. There was a couple of weeks ago, we had Kalina Sales who teaches at Tennessee State University. And one of the focuses that she has for her work when she's uh, talking to her students and teaching her students is like having them plumb their own culture to put it into their work because she teaches at a historically black college, her students are black, she's black. So like, yes, that's where you should be pulling from for your design instead of trying to mimic, I don't know, the Bauhaus or whatever. Yes. For me, I actually strengthened my idea in the BIPOC design history course that was run by Polymode. So Silas Monroe and some other lecturers came together and they presented what a canon would look like if African-Americans were included in it. And for me, that opened my eyes to think, okay, so why didn't I learn about my own design history in school? I remember my design teacher always mentioning to us that good design is very clean and very like Scandinavian or Swiss. And I'm like, yeah, but we have carnival. We have so much color and richness and diversity. Why Mm -hmm. can't I include that into my own designs? And for me, my thesis is more about showing designers that it can happen because I'm utilizing my own country, so Trinidad and Tobago, and our rich diversity and history and culture and language in my artifacts. So it's more leaning towards a case study of how you can do it. So it's not just the theory around decolonization and post-coloniality. It is there, but it is centered in, okay, this is what it is. This is how we do it. Like Mm. so many times when people do masters and PhDs, it's so to academic level that a practitioner can't understand what's happening. And I want me as a 22-year-old designer or aspiring designer to be able to say, okay, I understand what she's saying. I could do that. Now let me implement it in my own design processes. That's a really smart way to to think about it. And yeah, you're right. I mean, 
I know when I think about Trinidad and Tobago, because I went to, I mean, I went to college here in Atlanta, but we had a ton of Caribbean students, mostly from Trinidad and Tobago. And like, even just talking with them and hearing them talk about home and the richness Mm -hmm. of their culture and the food and the music and everything, like, why wouldn't you want to infuse that into your design? You know, because that's what you get inspired by. Yeah. There was a lecture recently at a workshop that I'm co-curating with the Futurist and Tashika Arno Sutton was there and she was also part of the BIPOC design history and she presented an exercise that she did in her degree program and it was around the genealogy of design and she infused in it her musical influences, her literary influences, the designers that made sense to her at that time and she mentioned that throughout she noticed all of her non-design inspirations were of Black culture, but her design inspiration was not of Black culture because there were no Black designers that she was, she was aware of at the time. Mm-hmm. And that's when she like pivoted her direction. And as part of my research so far, I've been interviewing my mentor, who um, is one of the lecturers in Trinidad who teaches almost all of the professional designers and she has been teaching for the last 30 odd years at um the john donaldson institute and she has said well in the interview she said well yes we have our culture but there's a standard to design there are rules to design and i'm like miss but yeah we have rules but shouldn't we be allowed to interpret the rules through our lenses uh, that we live. And she says, yes, Cherry, your visual vocabulary and your life experiences should influence how you design. But at the end of the day, it's still based on what the client wants. And that kind of like broke my heart a little bit because I am there thinking as much as I am doing following the brief of a client, if my audience is in Trinidad, it should reflect my audience more than the rules of design. Right now, like tethering on, okay, should I even think about what de- decolonizing design should be? Or should I just, you know, say, okay, there are the rules of design and you could break it, but not too much right now. So, yeah, it's a confusing space for me as well. I can see. I mean, I don't know. My advice is to break it. That's just me. <laughs> but also, I didn't go to design school, so maybe don't listen to that. But I mean, I can see where that that sort of where that conundrum exists. Like you definitely want to pull from what you know. But that's wow. That's so interesting. That's so interesting to hear. I want to talk about the futurist since you mentioned it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you talk about what it is and, and sort of like what attracted you to it? So the futurist is a para-academic organization. So it's institute that provides guidance for writers. And that's how I initially engaged with it. So last year in 2020, there was a workshop called Troublemakers. It's the second workshop that was held. And it's basically in the format of an online course, as well as a writing workshop for students who want to be a part of a community of, let's say, troublemakers, literally. So we are the ones who are doing texts on difficult subjects and themes that most universities don't necessarily want to get involved with or get too deep in because it's a hard topic to navigate. So for me, 
a Trinidadian being in a Swiss design school and one of my professors actually asking me, so what's the difference between your work as a Trinidadian and a Jamaican student who was enrolled at the time? I was like, well, she's from <laughs> Jamaica. Right. And <laughs> like those simple things that I needed a community to even understand some of the, the terms that I, I needed to negotiate and Futurist was that community. So I started off in Futurist as a participant in a, a workshop and I messaged and I said, hey, I want to be a part of this. If you need an intern, I'm available. I have a lot of free time next year because I'm extending my studies mm -hmm. and I want to be a part of this. And at the beginning of this year, I was looking for a job and I was I just came out of an interview to be a nanny for two kids. Okay. And I was like, Cherry. You can't be a nanny for nobody children because you have that level of patience. <laughs> and you have two degrees. And the moment somebody child turns to you and shout a little too loud, your Caribbean instinct might hit in and you might want to <laughs> discipline the child. And this is not Trinidad. People won't understand this. Right. And at that moment, negotiating these thoughts with myself to not say yes to <laughs> that type of job, I got an email from Nina and she was like, Cherry, are you still interested in being an intern? I was like, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> you know my heart. <laughs> and at that moment, I was like, yes, hell yes. I'll send her my resume. And she was like, she was so impressed with how I was in the workshop with my text. So at the workshop, you present a text that you want to work on for three months period. And within that period, you help, what's the word I'm looking for? You help other participants by reviewing their text as well. So it's like a peer review, but under the guidance of a deep time tree persons who were at the futurists. So in that, you give feedback to your partners, but you're in a group of about six or seven persons. And in the group, you all just provide feedback on each other's texts. And throughout, I was always able to provide guidance or provide suggestions. or there was always a rapport of me helping. And that led to me being open and able to be a part of the Futurist. And this year, I curated. So I came up with the program along with Nino, which is Against the Green. It's an online course as well as the writing fellowship. I'm looking at it now on the website and it says, uh, it's an online course and fellowship program fostering critical perspectives on the designed past and democratizing access to design history writing in a broad sense. I love that the futurist's focus is on like design politics and design writing. Is that just sort of born out of what Nina, who is the, I guess she's what the, the founder of futurist is that sort yeah. of born out of what she wanted to do? Or did you see this more as like a, a community need? It's both. So the first aspect for all of our online workshops is we create a theme and from the theme, we invite persons to sign up for the online course. This is the third iteration. And for this iteration, it was a payment for the persons who wanted to participate in the online course. And in your participation to the online course, you will be sponsoring the persons who wanted to take part in the writing course. 
And this worked out really well because we were able to open the online course for more persons as well as the writing course for 42 persons who are writing critical design theory texts. And this format provides also a community We operate on Slack mainly, so we have a community of over 250 persons in the Slack group for just this one workshop against the green. And last workshop, which was the Troublemakers, we had 50 persons. And this workshop was mainly focused on writing. But with this new iteration, we were able to do a bit more and open up the community to a larger amount of people. So we have people from seven continents all over wow seven even even antarctica okay maybe not seven guns no. <laughs> i was gonna say if, you, if y'all got a research scientist or some penguins or something right that's that's pretty dope but we do have one person doing research on the dodo bird which is quite interesting mm. <laughs> yeah i love that the focus is on writing and i guess the i don't know eventually those pieces will get published on futurist once they're through with this workshop Yes. So this is a format that has moved from the first workshop, which was the LIP Collective, where they focused on feminist writing throughout a period. And then through the troublemakers, a lot of the pieces are still being published. And with Against the Green, this would provide texts that will be published on the Futurist. So a lot of times when people do master's research and they put their life into this. They put a two years worth of knowledge into this. It just sits in a drawer somewhere and nobody reads it. As much passion that is imbued in this work, nobody reads it. Nobody gets to see this research. And Futurist provides the opportunity for this research to be viewed by as many persons as possible. And I think that's one of the best things. And I could attest it as well because my text as part of the Troublemakers, was published recently. It is called Culture No Context, where I was looking at the ethics of ethnographic museums. So Mm. I had a lot of beef with ethnographic museums when I came to Switzerland and I went to a couple. I was able to process that through the, the workshop, and it's also part of my thesis for my master's as well. What is an ethnographic museum? So ethnographic museums are museums that take cultural artifacts and display it in an artistic sense. So if you think of textiles or sculptural pieces from Africa, India, Oceania, South America, all of these things will be just on display in an ethnographic museum. Sometimes it may be arranged in gallery style, so it might be curated for a collection, or it might just be in their archives open for people to view, which is another um, thing that was hard for me to, <laughs> to deal with. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. I want to break a little bit from talking about of course, your journey and the work that you're doing in Switzerland, just to go back to Trinidad and Tobago for a minute. Talk about what it was like growing up there. Well, Trinidad and Tobago is the most beautiful place. Everybody will tell you the island nice, but my (laughs) island, real, real nice. (laughs) Um, (laughs) 
But I grew up in Mova, which is a place that the news always portrays as one of the worst places in Trinidad and Tobago. That wasn't really my experience. I experienced community. I experienced people looking out for each other. Yes, there is violence in our communities, but it's not as much as the news reports it to be. And I've always had this view that hey, maybe what you read on the news is not always true because it wasn't always my lived experience. I went to school in places that people also say is the worst areas of Port of Spain. So there's a part of Port of Spain that people call Rongley Bridge. So there's Picton, Nelson Street, and Bethlehem Girls. These were three primary schools in the area, and I went to Bethlehem Girls. And... I fell in love with art in the primary schools of Bethlehem Girls in an area where there were people tuning pans, people making mask costumes. So there was always creativity and vibrance in every aspect of my life. Mova and Laventil is places where the pan came from, which is a national instrument. And carnival really is birthed in these areas that people don't like <laughs> the most. And I've always had an idea that and creativity is born in the places where struggle is also overwhelmingly popular. <laughs> yeah. What it sounds like is that you grew up around a lot of creativity and ingenuity from, you know, these so-called rough neighborhoods or these rough places. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much ingenuity because you had to find ways to survive. You had to find ways to make money. You had to find ways in order to feed your family. My grandmother used to sell any markets every weekend and I used to be there with her. I had my own little stall selling my own little things, trying to make money for my own self. And at that time, I didn't understand that she was teaching me about business and how to invite people so that you could sell them your product over the person next to you who may have the same product. Mm -hmm. And many times, like she would um, tell me to draw a sign and put the price and everybody else would just have the number $2 for a pong of tomatoes. I would take my time and I would draw it and I would put little um, sunflowers around it. And these little things, I think <laughs> it may not have helped, but I think to myself that these may have invited people to come to our store to buy more things, but in different ways, creativity was always around me, but sometimes I wasn't aware of it at the time. And Hindsight is not 2020 anymore. Hindsight is <laughs> is really the thing that makes you realize, hey, the lesson that you didn't learn then, you're learning now. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about 2020 anymore. <laughs> yeah. Now, when you were in Trinidad and Tobago, you started out at the College of Science and Technology and Applied Arts, and later you finished up at the University of Trinidad and Tobago. I'm totally basing this off your LinkedIn, so please feel free mm -hmm. to chime in and correct me if I'm wrong. But you kind of made this switch from marketing to design. Like, where did that shift come in? As a teenager, after my grandmother passed away, I moved in with my uncle and aunt, and they really pushed me more towards the business side because I was always two minds about either business or art. I did both in in high school, so I had to pay to do art because it wasn't offered with the subjects that I wanted. So art was always something on the periphery, and they really encouraged me to go more to the business side. 
And I was like, okay, well, if you're sending me to do business, I'll do business that I like, which was marketing at that time. I started in 2006. And at that time, the government of Trinidad actually provided free tertiary education for all citizens. Mm. So you could go to college for free. And I went and I got my associate degree in marketing, but then I decided hmm, maybe I could switch to art. So I got a diploma in visual communication design. At that time, I was like, okay, what do I do next? <laughs> I decided that I will go finish my degree in business because I, I'm the type of person that once I start something, I like to finish it. So I wanted to get my degree in business. That was the moment I realized I don't like business having to do human resource management and organizational principles. I'm the person who, as much as I can memorize theory, I like to be able to explain it and I could create a story out of it and not repeat it word for word. So that did not work out too well for me in those <laughs> exams, but I passed and I realized my passion really lies within being creative and telling stories. And if I could do that visually, I'll go back and get my degree in visual communication design. So I got my degree in, after my business degree, I got my degree in graphic design at the same university. And it was a like a distance learning program. So it was a university in Sunderland in the UK, but there was a center in Trinidad that you go to and you would get these same qualifications. Okay. So after you are studying and you make the switch, you know, to graphic design and you're doing that, what was your, your early career like after you graduated? Well, after I graduated with my marketing associate degree, I got a job in a bank as an office assistant. So all of the other degrees which is visual communication, my bat and my two bachelors, those were done part-time. So I worked during the day and I went to school at night, which I will not recommend to anybody unless you have <laughs> a lot of heart and determination. It was extremely difficult at that time. I was grateful that my job required no brain power. <laughs> So as an office assistant, I was basically just filing papers into drawers for the entire day. And then three years later, I got a promotion to an administrative assistant where I also had to deal with all running the department. So making sure all of the office supplies were in order and making sure all of the managers had whatever they need for meetings. That is when I realized I cannot do this office administration <laughs> thing anymore. Some managers just don't know how to speak to people, especially when they think that they are in a lower position than them. Yeah. And many times I wanted to curse out my managers, but I remember that I had a job that paid for my degree and paid for all the things that associated with me in getting that degree. So doing design is never as simple as a business degree. You always have to get art materials. You have to think about printing for projects and all of these things. As much as the government was providing free tuition, I still had to think about how do I present a project to look professional, all these printing costs and all of these other things that you don't necessarily think about before. So I had to keep my job. <laughs> and... I realized that within RBC, there's a internal graphic designer 
So when I was there as an office assistant, I looked through the company directory and I called the graphic designer at the time. I was like, hi, I want to do graphic design. I want to know like what qualifications do you have? Like, how did you get the job? And the person, she was really sweet. And she told me the school that she went to. And it was actually the same school that I was in at the time. And Mm. she would help me with my assignments and um, help me just to get the portfolio that I needed to become the graphic designer. And when she left, she told me, Cherry, apply for the job. I did not get the job (laughs) the first time. But one year later, the person who replaced her left. And at that time, I was able to get work experience in graphic design. So within the year of that person holding my spot as the graphic designer of RBC, I was able to teach graphic design with a government program at the time, which was retraining adults who wanted to learn a skill. So after not getting the job and feeling really disappointed, I was able to find something that gave me the experience. So the next time the job came up, I was able to apply again and get the job. So it works out in the end. <laughs> wow. I mean, first of all, shout out to that woman for helping you out and yeah. and letting you know like this was an opportunity that you could take and also kind of motivating you mm-hmm. to get to that point. Yeah, she really did. And she's still a friend to today. Nice. She messaged me this week. Yeah. <laughs> what would you say is like the best thing about the work that you do now? The best thing about the work that I do is that nobody tells me what I could do. <laughs> So I initiate all my projects myself and I it's something that I never think that I could do because I have a knack for like executing other people's ideas really, really well. So you give me a vision, you tell me what you want to do. I sit and I plan with you and we get this done. But when it comes to doing it for myself, there's so much fear, there's so much apprehension. But over the last year, 2020 has taught me, if you're afraid, that just means that you're heading in the right direction and you're better, you better mash the gas under the brakes. So just keep going full steam ahead. And that really helps me to think about how to approach these projects. So a lot of the projects that I'm doing right now is around things that I've always loved. So I've always loved history. I've always loved music. I've always loved Trinidad. And a lot of my projects revolve around these things. Have you found while you've been there in Switzerland, and I know places have been locked down, but have you found some, like, I don't know, sense of community or some kind of like sense of home there yet? Yes and no. So for me, it was difficult to make friends because as any any person who is moving to German-speaking Europe will tell you, if you don't speak German, that's the first strike against you. (laughs) And Mm. I don't speak German. And it was difficult for me to even have conversations with persons because they, most people can't get past my accent. Even when I speak in my most standard English, <laughs> as they would want to put it, like mm-hmm. people just so en- enamored by, oh my God, your accent is so beautiful. But yeah, I'm asking for directions to go to the grocery. Like, tell me where I'm going. And for me, finding a community actually happened while I was in school. So for us, there was a break in the lockdown during the summer period. And I was just so happy to get out of my, was not even a flat, my room and my dorm. And 
other students who were also coming during the summer to do some work. So I found a community with my friend Itai Bly, who is from Israel, my friend Paulina, and she's from Poland, Swati, who's from India, Pallavi, who's also from India, and I have two German friends as well. For us, it's a community of immigrants, but we usually find a lot of common ground that we could all talk about, which is usually food and spices. Mm. (laughs) So I was able to form a community in my school during the time when nobody should be in school, which is the summer period. And we were all there just trying to catch up on what we think we would have lost during the lockdown. So, yeah. It's so interesting you mentioned that about food kind of being this sort of connective thing between you and other other immigrants there. I just finished watching this documentary series on Netflix called High on the Hog. I think it just came out today, like as the day we're recording it. And I'm okay. not sure if it's available like everywhere on Netflix. It may just be US Netflix. Not sure, but look it up. It's called yeah. High on the Hog. It's a four-part documentary series and the host goes from Benin, West Africa, to Charleston, South Carolina, to... Where else does he go? I know he goes to Texas. I feel like he goes to... Oh, he goes to Philadelphia, and then he goes to Texas. And it's like sort of tracking how so much food and and vegetables and recipes and tastes and spices that were there in Africa, like, made the voyage over and became the basis of, like soul food here. But I think Mm -hmm. sort of the connective tissue of that documentary and what you're talking about is how, one, how food can be this sort of unifying factor and how it seems like when food is on the table, and this is probably true in any culture, when food's on the table, we're a lot more similar than we are different. Very much so. I could attest to that. One of my friends, she's actually doing her master's on the intimacy (laughs) of food. And just in having discussions with her, I understand like all of the walls and the barriers that we think are there with food in front of us, it's not anymore. Mm -hmm. And you are able to communicate and share experiences a lot easier just by sharing that intimate moment of eating in front of somebody or even eating with them. Yeah. I want to say, I don't mean to embarrass you by by putting this out here, but speaking of food, as I was doing my research, I saw that you are doing cooking videos on YouTube. (laughs) Yes. Which made me so hungry watching them, but, but please talk about that. Oh my gosh. So during the lockdown, I was craving doubles which is like the quintessential trinidadian breakfast Mm -hmm. as much any trinidadian will tell you that doubles the right doubles will make you feel that you're a trinidadian and you can't ask the trinidadian who has the best doubles because they will always give you a different answer but for (laughs) me doubles has grown up with me i remember when doubles was like a dollar and then move to 150. When it went up to 150, I stopped by doubles for like a month. And then it <laughs> went up to $2. And I was like, okay, it is only going to go up from here. Doubles is like the cheapest thing that you could get for breakfast. But it also satisfies you after a fet, after you party all night mm-hmm. and you're sweaty and you're still drunk. You will find a doubles vendor to give you that hot bar 
and Chana, and it will remind you of everything that is good in the world. <laughs> and that was that was the feeling that I wanted to relive when I started my cooking journey on YouTube. I am still very shy in doing videos, but I'm getting there and I am I am working on it. I brought my cookbook with me from Trinidad, which is the Naparima cookbook. Mm-hmm. I think it's the book that all Trinidadians learn to cook from. And I am going through that book as though it is, I think there's a movie called Marie and Marie, where she's cooking through, is it Marie? No, Julie and Julia, where she's cooking through all of the recipes of a Julia Child's cookbook. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Amy Adams and Meryl Streep, I think. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. And I will definitely be doing that. And I want to bring more recipes to YouTube using Swiss ingredients because I honestly thought I would not find anything that would taste like home in a restaurant and I haven't. So this is why I'm cooking online. And for me, it's also a sense of bridging that gap where people think, especially in Switzerland, that the stranger is somebody who you have to be afraid of. Mm -hmm. But once I share food with you, you can't be afraid of me anymore. Yeah. Like this is this is me showing you my culture, showing you my side of life, and it, it involves a lot of flavor and a lot of it involves sustainability in ways in which you may not have considered. So we use all of the food, you mm-hmm. use all of the vegetable, you use as much parts of it as possible throughout the cookings, and I want to bring that to um to the universe. <laughs> Yeah, that sustainability part you mentioned, that's also something in that documentary that I talked about that I thought was really interesting. Like, so there's this thing, and I, I think it might, maybe this exists in other countries, but like, certainly here in the United States, because of, of slavery and such, there was, there's this notion that goes around that, you know, slaves were kind of given the bad cuts of meat or the, mm. the unpalatable cuts of meat. And we yeah. learned how to cook and use those in, in varied ways, like mm-hmm. pig's feet or pig ear or something mm-hmm. like that. But tail, chicken yeah, foot. but like this, this documentary showed that like we've always been like, that's not necessarily something that came about because of slavery in America. That's something that, mm-hmm. Africans have been doing because when they hunt and they get the animal, they use the entire animal. Yes. And a lot of indigenous cultures have used these things for centuries. And it's only because this new term has been coined sustainability that people are now looking at. How could we use as much of the products that we have as possible? Hey, Mm -hmm. hello, we've been doing this. You are new to the game. Let us show you how to do it. Yeah. I first heard about doubles actually because of this show. Back in 2015, mm-hmm. I interviewed, I think she might have been the first Trinidadian person I had on the show. Her name is, uh, Junan Alkins. And she has a, a animation company and a design company called Everything Slight Pepper. Oh, yes. And she was yes, mentioning the name of it came from like, mm-hmm. that's her doubles order. Yes, every Trini, you must have slight pepper. If you don't have slight pepper, I'm not <laughs> sure if you have a Trinidadian passport. If you have a little sweet sauce too, okay, you have a Trinidad and Tobago passport. We we, we with you for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to say, the videos, your videos on YouTube, they look, the food looks amazing. The stewed chicken, the macaroni pie, like, keep it up. 
it looks so, so good. <laughs> it was all done with my iPhone. <laughs> look, that's what that's what a lot of people are using. I mean, these look, these phones come out. I just got a new phone mm-hmm. like last month or so because I've been holding on to my old phone. And like yeah. this thing has three cameras on the back. Like these mm-hmm. phones are getting so sophisticated. Use the phone. That's where all the good cameras are. For me, I actually had a DSLR, and when I was leaving Trinidad, I realized this is too much for me to carry. I sold my DSLR and the money that I got from it. Mm-hmm. I put it towards buying the iPhone 11 because I know in the next two to three years, I'll be a student, <clears throat> and I'm not making any money to buy any new phone. So I wanted the latest, and I wanted to make sure that if I do anything with regard to recording or videos or photography, I at least have something that could provide me with good quality. And I am honestly excited to share more cooking videos. And this video, those videos were released as part of my first curatorial project. It's called We Cooking. And it was part of a performance festival in Zurich called Zurich Moves, in which I curated, I think it's 12 other Caribbean designers to present work into a publication for the 10th anniversary of Zurich Moves. Four curators came together and we produced a publication that is going viral. (laughs) It's getting a lot of buzz in the art world in Zurich and my mind is blown. This was the first time I've ever done anything like this and Mm -hmm. I want to do so much more of it. Well, if you don't mind, I would love to link to your YouTube channel in the video so the audience can can check them out as well. They're really good. Definitely. Thank you. Yeah. Do you feel creatively satisfied? Right now? Yes, I do. I actually had this conversation like a few weeks ago with one of my friends who still works in the bank. And she she said to me, Cherry, if you did not leave the bank at the time that you left, I'm not sure you would have been able to survive. Because for me, moving to Switzerland was a three-year project in which it involved at least 10 other people. <laughs> so 10 of my friends were there just cheering me on and making sure that I made like my savings goals and helping me think about ways in order to make additional money to pay off my bills to move to Switzerland. However, it was called Vision 2020, and it was not my goal to move to Switzerland. My goal was to move to Germany to go to design school there. When I got rejected... <laughs> I had to change plans. I had to pivot really quickly. Mm -hmm. And the friend who dropped me when I came to Switzerland, he actually came to Trinidad and he was like, Cherry, this is a really nice school. I think you should come. And he brought me brochures. And I was like, hey, if Switzerland accept me, I'll come. And I applied and they did. So that's how I got here. And this is how like a lot of my creativity, I could see the value in it now because it's something that I'm doing and I'm doing from my heart and I'm doing the, the projects that I really feel passionate about. And I really want people to take notice of how passion could collide with purpose and provide inspiration for you to do things and go places that you may not have necessarily thought was within your reach before. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? It's, it's 2026. You're out of school by this time. Like, what kind of work do you want to be doing? I want to be a writer and a lecturer. So 
the reason that I did my master's was to become a lecturer at the University of Trinidad and Tobago, which is one of the universities that I attended. But I am thinking now that with with Zoom and Skype and the accessibility that we have for online learning, I don't need to limit myself to geography. I would like to continue writing design politics and design thinking and design critique pieces because there's so many people and it will just reiterating the same things about design and not like looking at the nitty-gritty and the people who are being left out of the design conversations. And I want to say, hello, we're here. Please take a look (laughs) at us with my writing. But I also want to help the next generation of designers see that anything is possible and that they could bring their authentic selves into what they are designing. Well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? So online, I am at Slice of Cherry Pie. So it's pie with a Y. So it's Slice of Cherry, P-Y-E dot site. And I'm also on Instagram with the same name, Slice of Cherry Pie, Twitter, TikTok as well, where I just make fun out of things on TikTok. Yeah, those are the places. All right. Sounds good. Well, Cherry Ann Davis, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you really for sharing your honest look at how your life has been coming from another country and being in Switzerland during this whole lockdown and everything. But also really, like I can tell you have a lot of deep thoughts behind the work that you do about just kind of these intersections of culture and design and history. And I'm excited to see the work that you produce, whether it's through the future S or, or through your studies, like I'm excited to see how you bring your culture and all this work that you're doing, you know, into this world that perhaps in Switzerland is not ready for it, but I, I have a mm-hmm. feeling that you're going to make them ready for it, whether they want want to be or not. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Maurice. I just want to say one thing. My project is called Weeting Self, and it's exploration of what design could look like if culture is infused into it. So yeah, if I didn't mention that before. thanks to Cherry Ann Davis and of course thanks to you for listening you can find out more about Cherry Ann and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com and of course thanks to our wonderful sponsor for this episode Brevity and Wit Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world they accomplish this through graphic design presentations and workshops around IDEA inclusion, diversity, equity and accessibility If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of this interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? Look, if you want to leave us a glowing review like Santa Eric did, please, I'm not going to stop you. Please go ahead and do it. 
Don't be a stranger. Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram. Just search for Revision Path. Or like I said, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings and reviews, even eight years later, still help out a lot. But also they reach they reach me personally because I'm going to end up talking about it on the show. But also it just lets everyone know how great this podcast is, the people that it reaches, the people that we talk to. Um, it just helps make the world a better place. I like that. That's a good tagline. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.